You're listening to a reading of the book Disrupting Mercy by Matthew C. Clarke and Annabella Rossini Clarke. The book was published in 2022 and this reading is being distributed as a series of podcasts narrated by the author Matthew Clarke. Footnotes and bracketed references to verses in the Bible have mostly been omitted to make the reading flow more conversational. I assume if you want to study the fine details, you'll read either the printed or the e-book versions, which are available from many online booksellers, including Amazon. Biblical quotes are nearly all taken from the new Revised Standard Version. Chapter 3. Mercy in the Old Testament An initial thought to ponder. In The Merchant of Venice, Shakespeare's character Portia says, The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Have you been blessed as the recipient of mercy? Have you felt the blessedness of showing mercy to someone else? A long time ago, in a culture far, far away, a young ploughman was chosen to replace Israel's leading prophet. The chosen one was Elisha, and he was born during a violent period of Jewish history after the commonwealth of kings Saul, David and Solomon had collapsed. Internal political machinations had led to the breakup of the kingdom, with Jehoram ruling in the north, Jehoshaphat in the south, and Mesha in the southeast, while the external forces of Aram threatened from the northeast. Elijah lived through that time and eventually died peacefully as an old man. But what happened in between 1 Kings 19 and 2 Kings 13 was a remarkable life of mercy. Elisha took up the mantle of Elijah. He literally picked up Elijah's cloak and thus created the metaphor we still use today to signify a change of leadership. Elijah had been an outspoken critic of his own king and queen, a man with political and religious power who did not shy away from violence to protect religious purity. When Elisha saw Elijah mysteriously taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot, he received a double portion of the spirit of his mentor. He had watched Elijah at work and learned from his words about both politics and faith. But how well would Elijah's mantle sit on the shoulders of this ploughman apprentice? Virtually all the stories recorded about Elisha show him healing people in need with kindness and peace. He made poisoned food safe. He miraculously fed 100 men with a few loaves of bread. He raised a friend's dead son to life. When an army with horses and chariots attacked from Aram, Elisha prayed for them to be blinded, not as a punishment, but so that he could safely lure them away. The blind army followed him to Samaria, and when their eyes were opened again, behold, they were captured. Although others urged him to kill the prisoners, Elisha instead hosted a feast for them and sent them home. The result? No more raids from Aram. Elisha's attitude to enemies is shown even more in his interaction with Naaman, a commander of the enemy Aramean army, who had some dreadful skin disease. Naaman's wife had a personal slave, a young Israeli girl, who said, in effect, 
Your husband should go to the prophet in Samaria. I'm sure he could heal him. Naaman's wife told Naaman, and Naaman told the king of Aram. The king, surely realising what a political storm it would cause, wrote a letter to the king of Israel, politely asking his enemy to cure Naaman. The king of Israel metaphorically pulled out his hair, pondering how to avoid the trap. He had no way to heal Naaman, but just as clearly if he did not, then the offence to the king of Aram would escalate to further violence. On hearing about the problem, Elisha said very coolly to the king, What's your problem? Just send Naaman to me. The king complied, and to cut a long story short, Elisha arranged for Naaman to be healed by washing in the Jordan River. Although Naaman had come with chariots full of silver and gold, Elisha refused to accept any payment. In fact, Elisha became angry when his personal assistant took payment behind his back. However, although Elisha's act was a gift, this did not mean it was without intent or effect. Elisha said to Naaman, Go in peace. And I'm sure that a broad smile graced his face, because Naaman was not only physically healed, but also transformed. Through the water of the Jordan River, Naaman was born again and went home a servant of the true God. All these incidents show Elisha responding compassionately to people's immediate physical needs with a double portion of kindness. He repeatedly opens new opportunities for people, giving them a second chance to flourish. Even after his own death, the final mention of Elisha underscores the same pattern of mercy. When a dead man was hastily thrown into Elisha's tomb, the man miraculously bounced back to life. On the other hand, Elisha was not always so merciful. Soon after taking over from Elijah, Elisha was travelling to Bethel when a gang of boys accosted him with an obscure taunt, Go away, baldy, or some such insult. Incensed, Elisha cursed them, and perhaps to everyone's surprise, quote, Two she-bears came out of the woods and mauled forty-two of the boys. End quote. What are we to make of such unwarranted violence? Jewish commentary in the Talmud suggests that Elisha was later punished for this overreaction. Other people argue that the insult was more significant than I have described and that the boys deserved what they got. The biblical text, however, does not say that. In fact, it makes no commentary on the incident whatsoever, which leaves an opening for many interpretations. In the narrative flow, one clear result of the incident is that it cements Elisha's authority as Elijah's successor. In my own view, the inclusion of this incident in the biography of Elisha's life reminds us that even people with moral failures may still feel empathy and on their better days offer gifts of extreme kindness. The ability to show mercy is not limited to those who are morally perfect. Further, I think this early outburst of arrogance disrupted the trajectory of Elisha's ministry. The tragic result of being unmerciful to those boys may have been the prompt he needed to turn aside from the violence of his predecessor and toward the compassion of his God. Subheading. Chesed, Rakham, and other Hebrew words, with my apologies for poor pronunciation. Readings of the Bible that juxtapose an angry God of the Old Testament with a merciful God of the New Testament do not do justice to the rich theology of mercy within the Old Testament. 
To understand that heritage, our first step will be to understand the key Hebrew words within the ecology of love. Given the overlap between English concepts such as mercy, compassion, pity, sympathy, love and kindness, we will not be surprised to find that in other languages, multiple words for these concepts display the same ambiguity. As is normally the case with language translation, the words for these concepts in Hebrew do not relate to English words in a one-to-one correspondence. As a result, the suite of Hebrew words used in the Old Testament to describe these concepts are translated inconsistently in English versions of the Bible. The two most significant and relevant words are chesed and racham. Chesed and its variants occur over 280 times in the Old Testament, usually translated as loving-kindness or steadfast love, though some English versions of the Bible frequently use mercy, and the new Revised Standard Version even opts for clemency in Micah 7.18. Although love is an essential component of chesed, chesed is not the normal Hebrew word for love, which is the verb ahib, or the noun ahabah. Chesed is that type of love most clearly shown in the abundance of God's enduring kindness and faithfulness. Racham, in various forms as verb, noun and adjective, occurs over a hundred times. It too can mean love, but primarily that form of love shown in compassion or mercy. In the vast majority of Old Testament uses, Chesed and Racham relate to God's posture towards us but they emphasize different aspects of that posture. The two complement rather than oppose each other, and are often found together, as in the well-known verse, quote, The steadfast love, chesed, of the Lord never ceases. His mercy, racham, never comes to an end. That's Lamentation 3.22. And the idea is repeatedly used in Psalm 103. Chesed is mostly associated with God's covenant with humanity, especially Israel, and is expressed through God's faithfulness to that covenant. Chesed has legal, contractual connotations. But this does not imply that God's loving kindness results from a pre-existing covenant, as though the covenant obliges God to be faithful, loving and kind. Rather, it's the reverse. The covenant with Israel flowed from God's pre-existing chesed, This is clear from an oft-repeated pattern in the Bible, where God's loving-kindness continues to rescue Israel and others, even when they violate their side of the covenant. Racham, on the other hand, emphasizes the heartfelt compassion, typified by a parent's love for their child. As Pope John Paul II expresses it, Of this love one can say that it is completely gratuitous, not merited, and that in this aspect it constitutes an interior necessity, an exigency of the heart. Racham's linguistic root means womb. A womb is the original safe place, where we all once sheltered in warmth and nourishment. In Arabic, the same linguistic link is evident with rachim, womb, and rahma, mercy, sharing the same root. Consequently, in Islamic thinking, God is the womb from which we were born. The prophet Hosea says much the same thing. When calling Israel to return to the Lord, he writes, quote, In you the orphan finds mercy. End quote. That's Hosea 14.3. In God, even the motherless find a womb.
A contemporary Jewish understanding of this relationship between mercy and womb adds that no merit is required of a baby in the womb. The baby neither deserves nor does not deserve to be taken care of. The mother provides food, safety, warmth and love because of her joy in the potential of the unborn child, not because of anything that the child has done. The child is given care in the hope that the child will grow up to be worthy of it. When we call for mercy, we are in effect saying, please God, don't look at me for what I've done. Please judge me based on my potential for the future. Treat me like the unborn, like a baby in the womb. However, while I agree with the thought that mercy does not depend on the merit of the recipient, this particular Jewish understanding does not capture the essence of parental love and hence misses something important about mercy. A mother cares for a child in her womb because it is her child, flesh of her flesh. Her love does not depend on the future potential of the child. Future merit is still merit, turning the mother's love into a delayed transaction. The child does not earn the mother's care through future worthiness. Although a parent hopes their child will flourish, the love for the child is in no way dependent on that hope coming to fruition. If a mother magically knew that the child in her womb would grow into a mass murderer, she would still love and nurture it. Womb-like love, if it is because of anything, is because of the nature of being a mother, just as God's love and mercy toward us is because of who God is, rather than because of anything we have done, will do, or even might do. Those covenantal and parental aspects of mercy are augmented by several other Hebrew words. Salach occurs 51 times, meaning forgiveness. Chus occurs 23 times and is translated as pity, to look on with compassion and sometimes as the concept of sparing someone. Chamal and its variant Kemla occur 43 times and although their primary meaning is to spare, they are also translated as pity, mercy, and compassion. In nine verses, chus and chamal are used together in the negative to emphasize that no leniency should or will be shown. Chanan occurs in various forms about 200 times, mostly in the sense of pleading or beseeching, though sometimes as a gracious response to such pleading. Occasionally this is interpreted specifically as an appeal for mercy, such as Job 9.15. The idea of grace or favour is repeated in variants such as technicha, which is also sometimes translated as mercy, for instance in Joshua 11.20. Nasa occurs many times in the sense of taking something away, and sometimes has the moral sense of pardon or forgiveness, through which our guilt or punishment is taken away. Kapareth is often translated as mercy seat, but the association with mercy is indirect. The word literally means a covering and always refers to the gold slab on top of the Ark of the Covenant. The kapareth plays a key role in the Day of Atonement ritual described in Leviticus 16. And in the New Testament, Paul refers to Jesus as the mercy seat. Last, a central concern in the Old Testament that overflows into the New is the maintenance of shalom. This Hebrew word, often translated peace, encompasses all aspects of things being right, physical well-being, social harmony, moral goodness. 
Shalom is the state in which individuals can flourish because relationships are whole and good, including relationships with each other, with God, and with the created world. Shalom is never translated as mercy, but it provides the teleological context in which mercy becomes important. I make that point clearer in chapter 5, Mercy and Justice. Keeping in mind the distinctions and the overlaps between all these words, I now turn to how they are used in the Old Testament depiction of mercy, rather than exegeting the role of mercy through the whole Old Testament, I will focus on two exemplary passages, first the book of Hosea, and then the well-known verse Micah 6.8. Subheading, The Mercy of God in Hosea. The disturbing set of prophecies by Hosea forms one of the Old Testament's most extravagant portrayals of mercy. Hosea lived in the northern kingdom of Israel about 200 years after it split from the southern kingdom of Judah. He was keen to show how far the northern kingdom had moved away from God and the dire consequences of the nation's unfaithfulness for them as well as for the world around them. Quote, there is no faithfulness or loyalty, and interestingly, loyalty is actually chesed, and no knowledge of God in the land. Swearing, lying, and murder, and stealing, and adultery break out. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who live in it languish. Together with the wild animals, and the birds of the air, even the fish of the sea are perishing. Isaiah 4, 1-3 the idea comes to Hosea that God's people are acting like an unfaithful wife, and worse, like a wife who acts as a prostitute. In a provocative and problematically patriarchal move, Hosea sees the nation's unfaithfulness reflected in the unfaithfulness of his own wife, Goma. This powerful, emotional, and deeply personal anguish pushes the metaphor towards hyperbole, Hosea believes God told him to marry Gomer even though she was a prostitute who would inev inevitably be unfaithful. He names his daughter Lo-Ruhumah, which means literally no mercy, and one of his sons Lo-Ami, meaning not my people. Hosea curses his adulterous nation, calling on God to, quote, give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Hosea's attitude is deeply offensive. Imagine being either his wife or his children, thrown under the bus by your husband or father in the name of God. Imagine being pushed onto the social stage as an object lesson in faithlessness, unforgiveness and disinheritance. Fortunately, that is not the end of the story. As often happens, the biblical text subverts its own bias so that we are left thinking that the, quote, righteous, unquote, anger of Hosea is given centre stage so that it can be contrasted with the radical revelation of God's mercy. The text claims that God will punish Israel for her unfaithfulness, but also that God will woo her. The future hope is that Israel will relate to God as a wife, to a husband, rather than as a slave, to a master, and that the nation will once again know itself to be God's people, on whom God has mercy. The truth is that all along, while unfaithful Israel pursued other lovers, God continued to give her food and silver, and even the gold she threw away to her lovers. Such unfaithfulness inevitably results in hunger and barrenness, but God loves even those who turn aside to other gods. Israel, and by implication all of us, 
will remain in desolation until they acknowledge their guilt and turn to seek God. In the meantime, it can seem as though we live under God's wrath. Hosea writes in the voice of God, quote, Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. End quote. God will punish their sins, even to the point of returning them to slavery in Egypt. Quote, I will love them no more. End of quote. But then comes a surprisingly anthropomorphic turn. The husband and father, God, cannot maintain such anger. The turn starts with the word yet in chapter 11, verse 3. Despite Israel and Ephraim's unfaithfulness, God recalls the fatherlike joy of teaching a child to walk and of lifting the child to cuddle. How could a father subject their child to anger and desolation? Quote, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Hosea 11, 8-9 To clarify a naming confusion, recall that Abraham's grandson Jacob was later renamed Israel, and subsequently the label Israel was applied to all of Jacob's descendants. Ephraim was one of Jacob's grandsons, and so the label Ephraim refers to one significant tribe within the Israelite people. The phrase, my heart recoils, can be translated literally as, my heart is overturned. When God contemplates giving up on Ephraim or Israel, it is as though God's heart is upside down. To reject Israel would create a divine cognitive dissonance that Hosea recognises could not prevail. Why not? Because I am God and no mortal. God's holy essence is not expressed in wrath, but in mercy. This is the central revelation of Hosea, and one of the convictions that animate the Old Testament's whole trajectory. God is not fundamentally wrathful. God's nature, God's heart, is warmed by compassion rather than by the fire of wrath. Walter Casper expresses this conviction well, apart from the gendered language, quote, This deeply moving passage shows that God already in the Old Testament is not an angry and righteous God, but rather a merciful God, nor is he an apathetic God who sits on his throne, oblivious to all the sin and distress of the world. He is a God who has a heart, which flares up in anger, but which then overturns itself out of mercy. With this subversion, God shows himself, on the one hand, to be moved in a seemingly human way, and on the other, he reveals himself as being completely other than mortals. He reveals himself as the Holy One, the Holy Other, the constitution of his essence, which fundamentally distinguishes him from human beings and elevates him above everything mortal, is his mercy. It is his sublimity and sovereignty. It is his holy essence. End of quote. There is certainly an element of anthropomorphization in the claim by Hosea and Caspar that God has a heart that can change, but we should not imagine this as a naive projection of human emotional volatility. The intended direction of this metaphor is the reverse. God's proclivity for mercy rather than wrath 
acts as the model for the highest ideal of our human hearts. Those who seek God find mercy. Those who seek to honour God will find their heart turned in the same way as God's, away from wrath and toward mercy. Subheading. Hosea, Covenant and Conditionality. The prophecy of Hosea starts with an understanding embedded in covenantal thinking. The covenant between God and Israel, operating like a marriage, has been violated. Hosea thinks of Israel's plight in terms of adultery and prostitution. The problem is relational. Like an unfaithful wife, Israel has broken a covenant. Covenant is explicitly mentioned five times in Hosea. The promise of a new covenant in chapter 2 verse 18 that Israel has violated the covenant in chapter 6, verse 7, and chapter 8, verse 1, that Israel too easily makes empty promises to and treaties with other nations, chapter 10, verse 4, and chapter 12, verse 1. In a covenant, the parties pledge themselves to each other. This is not a business contract in which a certain action and payment are agreed, but a mutual giving of oneself to the other. This idea of covenant underpins Hosea's whole approach. Israel has traded a husband and wife relationship with God for a slave and master relationship with Baal. But God persists in the hope that the earlier covenant can be renewed. God woos Israel toward peace and safety with the promise, I will take you for my wife forever. I will take you for my wife in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will take you for my wife in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. That's Hosea chapter 2, 19 to 20. Walter Brueggemann noted that these verses encapsulate the five key characteristics of a covenant. Righteousness, justice, steadfast love, chesed, mercy, racham, and faithfulness. I would also add the characteristic of forever that is part of what distinguishes a covenant from a contract. Despite the patriarchal language, the implication of female inferiority and the right of a male to take her, this hoped-for covenant reflects God's giving in the context of mutuality. Within that mutuality, Israel will come to know God truly and intimately. The story gets more theologically interesting when Hosea reflects on why God withholds wrath and gives Israel another chance. God sees Israel's unfaithfulness, their rejection of God, and the moral corruption that arises from that rejection, as well as their suffering, and responds in mercy. That mercy encompasses both the forgiveness of their guilt and the easing of their suffering. But what prompts God's mercy? Thinking about covenant sheds light on what can seem to be an ambiguity of conditionality in the Bible. What I mean by the ambiguity of conditionality is that at times the Bible speaks in conditional terms about how God relates to us, while at other times it voices unconditional promises. There seems to be some equivocation in the Bible about whether God's love, forgiveness and mercy are conditional or not. In some cases they appear transactional, based on reciprocal obligations and with conditional blessings and curses. In other cases, God appears to act unilaterally, with no pre- or post-conditions, and seems to make commitments to act without regard for anything we might do. 
As a simple example, God's word to David through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 7 ends with the unconditional promise that, quote, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. End of quote. In Psalm 132, however, that assurance is qualified. Quote, if your sons keep my covenant and my decrees that I shall teach them, their sons also forevermore shall sit on your throne. So, will David's kingdom stand forever, or does its future depend on David's son's faithfulness to the covenant? The ambiguity may be resolved in various ways. Perhaps under the verses that seem unconditional lie unstated conditions, so that all of God's promises are dependent on our acceptance of them and our faithfulness to God. Perhaps Paul's claim that you reap whatever you sow shows that what can look like a conditional promise is often a statement of natural consequences. The ultimate reality is that God can show mercy toward whomever God chooses to show mercy. But another dynamic at play is that the conditionality of some biblical statements depends on whether they are situated within the context of covenant or not. A covenant imposes obligations on the parties, e.g., I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people, but if you will not obey me, that's from Leviticus chapter 26. Conditional statements, requirements and consequences are natural within such a legal context. Outside of covenant obligations, however, the relationship between God and humanity is less conditional. Even when people violate their covenant obligations, God can remain faithful because that's the nature of God. God's covenants with humanity are themselves motivated by chesed. As I noted before, covenants are not the cause of God's loving kindness towards us, but one of its results. Beyond covenant, God's posture toward us is one of freely given and unconditional grace. Mercy may prompt a covenant and be expressed through covenant, but mercy predates covenant and is independent from it. God can be, and is, merciful outside the obligations of covenant. That might lead some to question why God bothers with covenants. If unconditional mercy always trumps the conditional requirements of a covenant, what is the point of a covenant? Why does God institute a covenant with us if God knows it is going to fail, but will step in with unconditional mercy and love anyway? The reason becomes clearer once we understand that the covenants between God and humanity were established for our sake rather than for God's. As parents, we know how important boundaries are for our children. By defining boundaries, parents provide a scaffolding for developmental growth and safety. God uses covenants in the same way for us all. Boundary setting is itself an act of mercy, a kindness toward the needs inherent in immaturity. When a child pushes the boundaries or violate a covenant, a good parent will allow the consequences or punishments of the covenant to affect them. That too is a form of mercy to the extent that the child might learn from the discomfort, but a good parent would never allow the covenant boundary to be the final word, especially when that puts the life or health of their child at risk. Might it be that the notion of covenant obligations captures the conditional aspects of God's interaction with humans, while mercy captures the unconditional aspects? That is certainly the case in Hosea, where God's response to Israel's need springs from two sources, God's heartfelt compassion for them and God's covenantal pledge to be faithful to them. 
When kindness is enacted solely because of an obligation, it ceases to be mercy. Mercy is a free gift, not a contractual transaction. Mercy is prompted by compassion, not duty. Yet there's no contradiction between the obligation and the free act. An act of kindness may be simultaneously an obligation and a free gift. God may show kindness to Israel both because God has pledged to do so and because God chooses to do so out of compassion for their suffering. Either motive may be sufficient on its own. One act of kindness by God or by us may result from a prior promise. Another act of kindness may result from compassion toward a specific instance of suffering. A third act of kindness may lie within the intersection of both. Compassion for a specific instance of suffering by a person to whom we have pledged ourselves. The third case is exactly what the prophet Micah concludes about God. God, quote, delights in showing clemency. He will have compassion upon us and cast our sins into the depth of the sea, end of quote. And in doing so, God shows faithfulness to what was sworn to our ancestors. Nothing should seem strange about those dual motivations. They are the same as occur within a human marriage. I act kindly toward my wife when she is suffering, both because I have made a pledge to her and because I have compassion on her. There's no need to see any conflict between God's commitment to a covenant and God acting mercifully, nor between the conditional and non-conditional elements of God's promises to us. God does not need to express just one or the other, and there's no contradiction in God expressing both. That situation is clearer in relation to children. Parents do not make a conscious covenant with their children in the same way as a husband and wife do to each other. Hosea starts with covenantal thinking, that Israel has been an unfaithful wife. But in the watershed moment of Hosea chapter 11, God's reason to withhold wrath is phrased in terms of God's relationship with Israel as a parent rather than as a husband. In the logic of Hosea, the rift between God and Israel arises from a violation of covenant, but the reason God withholds wrath and shows mercy is explicitly not God's obligation to Israel as wife, but God's compassion to Israel as child. The same thought was voiced by the prophet Jeremiah toward the tribe of Ephraim. Quote, Is Ephraim my dear child? Is he the child I delight in? As often as I speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore I am deeply moved for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. God shows mercy towards Ephraim because God's heart is moved with parental compassion. That understanding helps to disentangle the confusion about whether God's love, forgiveness and mercy toward us is conditional or not. The biblical evidence is that God's actions are both, sometimes conditional and sometimes not. God acts toward us in loving kindness within the context of covenant, and in that context, mutual obligations prescribe a conditional framework for the relationship. But God also acts toward us with unconditional mercy outside any bounds of covenant obligation. Subheading. Loving mercy. The mercy that flows from the very nature of God, and was demonstrated in the way Jesus treated everyone he met, is supposed to be a foundational trait of God's people as well. This is most famously expressed in a verse from the prophet Micah, written perhaps in the late 8th century BCE. Quote, 
He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's Micah 6.8, this time from the New International Version, because in this context it emphasizes chesed as mercy. To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. What does it mean to love mercy? At one level, everyone loves mercy when they are the recipient. We all appreciate being treated kindly for others to act toward us with compassion for our struggles, empathy for our eccentricities, and forgiveness for our failures. As long as those attitudes towards us do not smell of pity, we love being the beneficiaries of mercy. Rather than encouraging us to enjoy receiving mercy, however, Micah is, of course, referring to the converse, that we should love mercy being expressed to others. One aspect of that love applies to how we react when we see someone else receiving mercy. During the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020, the Australian government offered financial assistance to any small business that could show at least a 30% drop in income from the same period in the previous year. There are good economic reasons to keep as many small businesses solvent as possible, but such schemes can also be viewed as acts of mercy from society as a whole to those struggling at the lower end of the capitalist eco-structure. It was Australia as a whole who decided, through their leaders, to offer that assistance and to foot the bill through taxes and public debt. My wife's takeaway coffee business is our sole source of income, and we worked hard during COVID lockdown to provide a service to the local community. We worked longer hours and, at considerable personal cost, started a delivery service to support people who could not leave their homes. As a result, our income dropped only 22% during that first wave of lockdown, less than the 30% threshold, and so we received no government assistance at all. Other businesses saw their income drop far more than ours, sometimes through no fault of their own, sometimes through a lack of initiative, and sometimes through deliberately holding their business back. Through the public mercy of financial assistance, they received substantial amounts of money, while we did not. The point of the story is to ask myself how I feel when someone else receives a cash handout or a tax break in times of financial hardship, but I do not. Do I rejoice in their good fortune? or complain that it's not fair. How do you react when a family member gets a better Christmas present than you do? When someone sick becomes well, but you or those you love do not? When a political prisoner is granted clemency? When a death sentence for a horrendous murderer is commuted? Do you criticise the giver for being overly generous to someone who did not deserve it? Do you begrudge the gift because someone else received it but you did not? Micah suggests that God would have us rejoice. Fostering that attitude involves some complex psychology, for it requires us to be satisfied with what we have rather than envious of what others receive, and it requires us to rethink what it means to deserve something. Ultimately, Micah 6.8 calls us to something beyond rejoicing when others are shown mercy. We are not called to just love mercy from afar as a spectator. What God requires of us is to love the process of practicing mercy ourselves. The word love has many meanings. The way we love our partner is different from how we love our pet dog and how we love a good coffee and how we love being on holidays. 
the Hebrew word used by Micah, Ahaba, is just as versatile as our English word love. This verse is the only time Ahaba appears in Micah, and in this context it means something like to treasure or cherish, to revere or honour, and to engage with excitement. The same thought is emphasised in the next chapter of Micah, where we read that God, quote, delights in showing clemency. That's chesed. That is, we are not being told to act mercifully out of duty or fear, or for what it might gain for us, but to act mercifully because we love doing so, because it delights us. Mercy ought not be a rare exception, but a way of living. If we loved mercy, we would always be looking for opportunities to express that love by actively showing mercy to others. Subheading. Justice, mercy and humility go together. Micah 6.8 commends not only mercy but also justice and humility. These three intertwine in the lives of those who seek to lead a good life. That may seem odd, because common conceptions of justice, mercy and humility place them in conflict with each other. I need to tease out a few nuances to see how they function together. Mercy is often imagined in opposition to justice. In stereotypical cases, justice demands some punishment, recompense or restitution, but mercy steps in and lets the person off the hook. Writers from various traditions claim that justice and mercy are in conflict. As an example, disagreement about the relationship between God's justice and mercy was a key issue in the Reformation split between Roman Catholics and Protestants. Since 1999, however, Lutherans and Catholics affirm that, quote, God's justice is his mercy, end of quote. In line with that declaration, Pope John Paul II saw in God's mercy evidence that love holds primacy over justice. Quote, this seemed so obvious to the psalmists and prophets that the very term justice ended up by meaning the salvation accomplished by the Lord and his mercy. Mercy differs from justice, but it is not in opposition to it. End of quote. In chapter 5, I will say much more about justice and mercy and how the relational intention of both concepts reasserts their essential harmony. For now, I just plant the seed of this thought. Biblical justice is not about getting what one deserves, and biblical mercy is not about being let off from some deserved punishment. In the Old Testament, justice and mercy cooperate rather than compete. In the context of a relational breakdown between Israel and God, Psalm 85 verse 10 asserts that mercy, chesed, and truth meet, justice and peace kiss. Covenant violation and the resulting conflict do not prevent the cooperation between mercy, truth, justice and peace, but necessitate it. If there is to be reconciliation, the voices of all four must be heard. When we see the four as contradictory, we are forced to choose between them. But if they meet and kiss, the synergy can create deeper understanding and unexpected possibilities. Humility also plays an important role in clarifying how we are to apply justice and mercy. Sometimes people try to impose justice and mercy within a power structure. Justice is often mediated by an authority figure who declares guilt or innocence and imposes consequences. In mercy too, the normal picture is of a magnanimous giver and an undeserving recipient. In both cases, there is a power imbalance that implies, or at least permits, 
moral superiority. Humility is the antidote to such superiority. To walk humbly with your God is to have a right view of oneself as dependent, to recognize that we too need mercy, and to position ourselves as peers with all humanity. From that position, alongside rather than above others, we can act with mercy and justice in our relationships without being judgmental or patronizing. Pope John Paul II called particular attention to the importance of mutuality in mercy, Patronizing attempts at kindness that flow in one direction from the powerful to the needy fall short of the ideal of mercy. The humility in our posture comes from our recognition that every time we show mercy, we also receive mercy. Quote, An act of merciful love is only really such when we are deeply convinced at the moment that we perform it that we are at the same time receiving mercy from the people who are accepting it from us. If this bilateral and reciprocal quality is absent, our actions are not yet true acts of mercy, nor has there yet been fully completed in us that conversion to which Christ has shown us the way by his words and example even to the cross, nor are we yet sharing fully in the magnificent source of merciful love that has been revealed to us by him. End of quote. The words bilateral and reciprocal in this quote do not imply a transactional debt. The Pope was not proposing that mercy requires something to be paid back. His point was that an appreciation of our own fragility leads to an approach to caring for each other that is mutual rather than one that maintains separateness and superiority. In the process of blessing others, we bless ourselves as well. Subheading. Not an option. Mercy is often considered to be supererogatory, a morally good action that is not obligatory. To be merciful is to go above and beyond what one morally must do. In contrast to this good but optional view, Micah 6.8 is phrased as what the Lord requires. In what sense should we understand love, mercy and humility as requirements? In my youth I used to play tennis, though not very well. One of the rules of tennis is that the server must stand behind the baseline until they have hit the ball. If you step over the line, the umpire will call a foot fault. Two such faults in a row and you lose the point. Serving from behind the line is in that sense a requirement. Can you play tennis without standing behind the line? Certainly. Many people play tennis for fun without imposing all the rules. As a boy, I was so hopeless at serving that my father would often let me serve illegally, just to enjoy the game together. And even in a professional context, you could play a whole match without adhering to that rule. It would just mean that you lost every point when you were serving. That would not be a particularly good game. Micah says that God has shown us what is good. Goodness is demonstrated by God's character revealed in creation and in God's covenant history with Israel. The Hebrew word translated good here is rendered elsewhere as beautiful, better, and prosperity. Rebecca was beautiful in this sense, in Genesis 26 verse 7, as was the young David in 1 Samuel 16:12. Further, the Hebrew word translated as requires is more usually rendered as seeks or cares for. So the sense here is not that God has shown us what we must do to be morally good, but that God has shown us what to seek if we mean to live well. To play a good game of tennis, you need to serve from behind the line. 
To follow God toward the good life, you need to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. Those three are what God cares about, what God seeks, and hence they become a requirement for any who would share God's heart. To bring in a New Testament image, showing mercy may well be supererogatory in the sense that it is going the extra mile. There are times when following the example of Jesus means that we go beyond the formal requirements of any law. The law might require you to carry a Roman soldier's pack for a mile when asked to, but the follower of Jesus will carry it two miles. Matthew 5.41 Jesus came to free us from the coercive constraints of law. See, for example, Paul's discussion of our freedom from the law in Galatians 3. And yet those who decide to follow the way of Jesus will, of necessity, love mercy, because otherwise they would not be following the example of Jesus. For us, the behaviour and attitudes of Jesus become normative. Our own ethics and character are to become conformed to his example. Although a legalistic way of thinking was familiar to Jesus, his own ethical approach was relational rather than defined by the strict application of law. Acts of kindness that are commonly understood as optional are precisely the things that define mercy in the biblical sense. Mercy is always above and beyond anything that can be legislated. If Jesus' instructions to go with him two miles became a rule, then mercy would have us go three miles. In most ethical approaches, such actions are optional, but for followers of Jesus they become an essential part of discipleship. The life of Jesus, including his consistent expressions of mercy, is normative for those who want to follow his lead. Subheading. Something to consider. In the light of Micah 6.8, what does loving mercy look like in your life? What do you hope it will look like in five years? This chapter of Disrupting Mercy has been narrated by Matthew C. Clarke. Other chapters are also available from the usual podcast distributors. You can also find them along with more details about the authors at turningteardropsintojoy.com. If you'd like to join a discussion about the book and share your own experiences of mercy, search for the Disrupting Mercy group on Facebook.